Before we get started uh, this morning, um, I just want to invite you to today experience the deep, deep love of Jesus. I know there are people here this morning who have never been in a church before in their life. There are some here this morning who have been in a church all their life. And regardless of what category you find yourself in, you and I are in need of the deep, deep love of Jesus. And so I pray with all my heart that you experience that because of his great love with which he loves you. And even when we were dead in our trespasses of sins, he made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you have been saved. So just know that fully and completely this morning. That's my prayer for us. As we get started, I want to introduce you to some friends. A few weeks ago, you'll remember we prayed for uh, our friends at Redeemer Church just down the street, Dusty and his staff, and I can tell you uh, it was a tremendous encouragement to them. And so this morning, I want to introduce you to some new friends. Um, These folks serve at First Baptist Church Wolferth. So on your right is the lead pastor. His name is C.W. Faulkner. Great, great uh, man. In the middle there is Chance Morton. He's kind of their assistant pastor slash student minister. And then the guy on your left, his name is Gerald Moore, and he's one of their newly appointed elders. So C.W. is one of the pastors along with Dusty, um, that I pray with regularly. Do we pray for each other and the things that we're experiencing in our own personal lives and our ministries for our churches? And so I asked CW specifically, what can we be praying for you about as a church family? He gave me three things. He says, number one, pray for our hope in the Lord. Number two, for joyful evangelism. And then finally, a culture of disciple-making in our church. And boy, when I heard that, I thought, man, we could pray the exact same things for for ourselves. And so I want to take some time here in a minute to pray. But if you will notice in the front of you, there are cards. Thank you there. If you would, grab one of those and make sure people on your pew have one of those. They're notes of encouragement. And here's what I want to ask you to do. You won't offend me if you do this in the middle of my sermon. um, But I'm going to give you some time here in a minute. Because I want you to take a brief moment just to write a note of encouragement to CW, to his staff, to the, to the brothers and sisters in Christ at First Baptist Church Wolfworth, and just let them know that we care about them, that we're praying for them. Last time we did this, I was so proud. I took a stack about that big to uh, Dusty and his staff, and man, it was an encouragement to them. So um, I just want to invite you to do that. I'm going to give you some time real quick to just write a brief note of encouragement, your prayer for them, and then I'll close this in prayer as we pray for them together. We pray, Lord, thank you for our brothers and sisters in Christ at First Baptist Church, Wolforth, who are gathering even now as we are here in our church family. They are gathering in their church family, and they are looking to you as we are looking to you. Uh, and one day, we won't be in separate locations, but we will gather around the throne together. And until that day, Lord, we want to pray for our friends at First Baptist Church, Wolford, we just pray that they would continually and increasingly have hope in you. In a world that has a lot of hopelessness, there is immeasurable hope in you, our Savior. And so I pray, Lord, along with our church family, that they would experience more and more of that. 
They would do so, and, and it would pour out of their lives through joyful evangelism. As they receive the goodness and kindness that comes from you, that it would then extend into the lives of those around them. And Lord, that they would be faithful to equip the saints for the work of ministry in this culture of disciple-making, that we would go and make disciples as you've called us to, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And we do this with great confidence because you tell us you are with us always. So, Father, we pray these things boldly with confidence as we come before you, our great God and King. And we thank you for that privilege as we remember our friends at First Baptist Warforth. May you bring abundant blessing upon them. We pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you for doing that. Um, this morning, we're going to talk about the Lord's Prayer, which is, as many of you know, a prayer that Jesus taught his disciples. And of all the prayers that we'll look at in the Bible this summer, this is probably the most popular one that people would think of when you think about prayers in Scripture. But, but I want to invite you to look at what is familiar with a fresh set of eyes, because one of the realities of a church like ours is that we are filled with people who come from all different kinds of church traditions. There are people who grew up in Church of Christ. There are people who grew up in the Methodist church. There are people who come from a charismatic church. There's all kinds of church traditions. And each of those traditions will have used the Lord's Prayer in different and unique ways. But this morning, what I want us to do is I want us to consider the original intent that Jesus had in mind when he taught this to his disciples. And so to do that, I want us to look past our traditions, however we might have grown up in whatever church setting that we might have grown up, that we kind of look past our traditions and we receive the instruction that Jesus gave his disciples as instruction given directly to us, to you and I. And if we do that, I think one of the first things that we'll recognize is that the Lord's Prayer is probably not the best description to give this passage. Now, if we go to John 17, which we know is the high priestly prayer, that's really the Lord's Prayer because we're getting a, a kind of an inside peek. We're being able to listen in on his prayer before the Lord, just before he was going to the cross. But what we have in Matthew 6 is really a disciple's prayer. Because he's answering their question, how do we pray? And so he's teaching them what that looks like. Now, I didn't say the disciples' prayer as if it applies only to the 12 disciples of Jesus. I said a disciples' prayer, which it means it applies to every Christian disciple who has chosen to follow Jesus as their Savior. So to be clear, Jesus gives these instructions to guide you and I in our understanding of what prayer should be. And the context is really key to the understanding. So I want us to look at that and consider it together. Because this discussion about prayer was kind of at the, at the heart of his Sermon on the Mount. A very familiar uh, sermon that uh, Jesus taught. And I can't help but hear that phrase and think back to when we went to Israel and stood on the mount where this sermon was given. So I always have this picture in my mind's eye of what it might have been like to have been there that day. But I can assure you that the sermon that Jesus gave 
was not what the people expected. It was altogether different than what they had heard or even seen from the religious leaders of their day. And Jesus seemed to have a very clear purpose in mind. He wanted to recalibrate their understanding of the character and purpose of God. Now, let me explain what I mean. I'll give you an illustration. If you have a, a watch that has a digital compass on it, you know that it has to be recalibrated. I had one that I would use for backpacking, and it was really important because, see, that digital compass uses the Earth's magnetic fields, okay? But those magnetic fields have all kinds of interference from electronics and things around us. So when you set out on a trip, if you're going backpacking into the wilderness, you need to recalibrate your watch to make sure it's set for that environment that you're going to be in. Otherwise, a one to two degree difference in the calibration can literally send you miles, miles off course, okay? And so that's exactly what's happening here with Jesus. The truth has been distorted, and the people he's speaking to are way off course. They're headed in a completely wrong direction. So Jesus is trying to recalibrate their understanding, to, to bring them closer to an accurate understanding of the true character and purpose of God. He does this by, by taking the common understanding of the kingdom being taught at that day, and here's what he does. He takes it as it is, and he makes it upside down. He flips it. I mean, it's completely opposite of what the people expected. We see this right at the, the very beginning in the Beatitudes as he begins this Sermon on the Mount because he talks about the blessing of those, get this, who are persecuted. Blessing of those who are hungry and thirsty. The blessing of those who are poor in spirit. It's not what they expected. Because he follows that with a condemnation of the, the public display of the righteous deeds before the eyes of people to gain attention on yourself, which was what was most common during that time. He makes multiple adjustments. He says, you've heard it said. And then he'd give a kind of a common understanding of a, a religious principle of the day. But then he would follow that by saying, but I say to you. He, he's re calibrating their standard of truth. And each time, it, it, it more often than not, is the opposite of what they expected. He pointed to the hypocrisy that was present during that time. He warned them, and this would have been staggering, okay? Especially if you were one of those who thought you were faithfully following God. He says, there will be those who claim to know God, who in the day of judgment will be rejected because of unbelief. Now, if you're listening to this, does he have your attention? He even goes so far as to say that, that there will be those who are able to perform miracles, okay, get this, to perform miracles in the name of Jesus who we found out to be false prophets. But the humble the lowly, the gentle, the weak, those who are really the outcasts of society, theirs is the kingdom of God. 
It was within this context, really with their full attention, that Jesus then answers their question and teaches them how to pray. A prayer that, again, centers on the character and purpose of God. He is realigning, recalibrating their understanding. But before we look at the details of what is in this prayer, I want us to first consider what is not. Okay? The first thing is that this prayer is not long. Okay? I timed it. You can pray it thoughtfully within 30 seconds. Okay? So it's not a long prayer, which would have been a contrast to what was typical of that day. You'll see in Matthew chapter 6, verse 7, Jesus said, And when you're praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. It's the belief that God will respond, is more likely to respond the more sincere you prove yourself to be. And the Jews had kind of incorporated this idea into their prayers, resulting in these long, emotional petitions, using repeated words and phrases, just imploring the Lord for his response, reporting the Lord for his response. Because some that they believed that would, that would generate some action from the Lord if they could prove that they were sincere in their prayers. But the prayer that Jesus teaches is both clear and it's concise. But it is not light. The prayer is filled with deep theological truth. It, it highlights the infallible character of God, the infinite sovereignty of God. Which means that a disciple's prayer is not presumptuous. It, it doesn't seek to make a deal with God or demand a certain response from God. It, it reveals the subtle difference between God's will and God will. The first respects his sovereignty. The second demands a response. It's not long. It's not light. And probably most obvious, if you compare it to our typical prayers, it's not centered on our needs. You're just not going to see it in there. And part of that's because if our prayers are focused on our needs, they're always changing. <laughs> for example, if you're discontent in your job, you might pray for a new job. But then you get a new job and you don't like your new boss. And so you pray for a new boss and then you get a new boss and then you find out that your old boss was actually pretty good by comparison, right? They're always changing. It's like a moving target. But what we know about God is that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He does not change. It's like when H.B. Charles says, this is so good. He says, the things we pray about are the things we trust God to handle. Okay, the things we pray about are the things we trust God to handle. But he goes on and says, the things we neglect to pray about are the things we believe we can handle on our own. See, Jesus is teaching us that prayer ultimately is a posture of dependence. And when we look at this prayer that he taught his disciples, it's ultimately a prayer of unconditional trust. If, it, if I could sum it up in one simple phrase, it's, you've got this. You've got this. 
So that being said, I want us to look at the prayer together. So if you would turn to Matthew chapter 6, Matthew chapter 6, and I want us to look at it together beginning in verse 9. I'll read it all the way through. It says, in verse 9, pray then in this way, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now, to be honest with you, we could turn this simple prayer into a six-week sermon series. I mean, there's that much goodness in here, and I'm going to try to cover it in, in one sermon. So um, we, in order to do that, we're going to have to look at the big picture, you know, kind of ask the question, what's at the heart of this prayer? And, and to answer that question, I want to divide it up into three specific categories, God's glory, God's promise, and God's power. Okay, we're going to see this unfold, but I believe these are three important categories that we can see displayed within this prayer that Jesus taught his disciples, God's glory, God's promise, and God's power. And Jesus begins the prayer by saying, our Father who art in heaven. So he begins right off the bat by exalting God in all of his glory. But it's a beautiful balance when you look at it by by balancing both the intimacy and the sovereignty of God. Because on one hand, we can approach God as a loving father. And we need to understand that this is incredibly unique when you look at religions around the world, okay? Religions around the world always have a respected distance by which they must keep from whatever deity that they serve. One, because they're scared to death about what he might do if they got too close. But what Scripture tells us is that you and I can approach the throne of grace with confidence. Why? Because we have a loving Father who delights in his children, and he actually invites them into his presence. This is a prayer that presumes a relationship, knowing who God is and knowing that you are known by this God, having been created by him, having been knit every piece by piece in your mother's womb. He knows you intimately, and he wants you to know him. But it also acknowledges that God does not live and work within the limitations of our world. It says that he's in heaven, where he rules and reigns supreme. It tells us that his name is holy is because he's altogether different. He, he, he's set apart. So when Jesus speaks these prayers, this prayer to his disciples, he wants them to see this balance between intimacy with our Father and yet also at the same time his sovereignty in the world because he goes on to tell us that this world is not our home, because what are we anticipating? We expect one day that his kingdom will come, that Jesus Christ will return, and that he will establish his kingdom on earth, and his kingdom will have no end. That is an undeniable hope that we live and long for when we choose to follow Christ. But in another sense, the kingdom has already come. 
Because Jesus said, even in his ministry, the kingdom of God is in your midst. So when Jesus came, he brought kingdom realities with him. Now, if that's true, and it is, then that means that those same kingdom realities exist in us. We know that because of what we see in Romans chapter 14, verse 17. For the kingdom of God is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit that resides in the heart of everyone who confesses Jesus Christ as Lord. It is present within us in that moment. And so those kingdom realities that were introduced by Jesus are now in existence within the hearts and lives of his people. Righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, which is why we can pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because we know that God will often fulfill his purpose in the world through his people. He has equipped us and he has called us for that. It's what we see in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20, when it says, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That, my friends, is the ultimate goal. It is why we are here. It is, in fact, the only reason we are here and not with him in heaven living eternally in this moment. We are here to exalt the living God as our loving Savior, proclaiming salvation through faith in Christ alone, finding freedom and forgiveness through what was accomplished at the cross. Our life, our ultimate goal, if you're ever struggling and you're wondering, man, what what am I supposed to do with my life? Where am I supposed to go? What am I supposed to do? This is your answer. It doesn't matter what job you have, what school you go to, what family you belong to. Ultimately, our goal is to bring glory and honor to our Savior, Jesus Christ, to put the gospel on display through our lives. That's your goal. That's your purpose in life. The prayer continues by trusting in God's promise. He says again in verse 11, Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. So since our heavenly Father rules with compassion, we can trust in his faithful provision. And in this first statement, I think Jesus has more in mind here than food. When he talks about daily bread, however, that statement would have immediately rung true in the hearts and minds of his audience because they would have undeniably thought about their forefathers who were wandering in the wilderness when God did what? He gave them daily bread, right? He gave them manna from heaven. And you'll remember that they could only collect enough bread to feed their family for the day. Because if they tried to store up for future needs, whatever they kept would spoil overnight and you'd have to throw it away. It was completely wasted. So they had to learn. He was teaching them, trust me. I will give you what you need for today. And when tomorrow comes, I'll do it again. So don't worry about tomorrow. Trust me for today. You see, 
they had to receive his daily blessing and then trust the Lord for tomorrow. And here's the deal. So do you and I. It is no different for us. That's why Jesus says in this same sermon, just a few verses later in chapter 6, verse 31, he says, do not worry then saying what we will eat or what we will drink or what will we wear for clothing. For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. See, this is the conviction that God will supply all that we need to fulfill his will. Not more, not less. All that we need for his will in our lives to be done. And so what that means is that we make a daily decision of trust and dependence. And we reject all the what-if worries of what might happen tomorrow or, or the next day or the next day. I sat this weekend with our sweet friend Melinda Hill. And I would ask and urge you to pray for her diligently as she battles terminal cancer and is in a great, great deal of pain. And as we sat there beside her bed, I tried to help her by recognizing that, that she's in a really hard place. And there's a lot of questions that we don't have answers for. Why is this happening? How long will this last? Will, will, I, will it get worse? How's this going to be managed? What's this going to look like? And we don't know the answers to any of those questions. But here's what we do know. Your father loves you. He has suffered so significantly that he understands what you're going through. And he wants to enter into it with you to carry you, to care for you, to comfort you. That's what we know. And so one of the things that Jesus is teaching his disciples is what we need to learn, even in our deepest hurts and pains, is that he is with us in that moment. And we need to focus on what we know to be true, that God is good, that he is sovereign, that he is kind, that he will accomplish all that he promises that he will do. And one day he will bring everything to redemption, that there will be no more sickness, there will be no more disease, there will be no more sin, no more weeping or crying, no more pain, and no more suffering. We know that to be true. And so we got to set our hearts and minds on what is good, what is right, and what is true. And as much as we possibly can, don't put our hearts towards things that we don't have answers to. All the what-if questions about tomorrow. Let's think about what we know to be true right now, right here, today. I think that was the message of Jesus with his disciples. See, this is a prayer of trust. It's a, it's a posture of dependence. It's trusting that Jesus is our Savior. Therefore, here it is, we don't have to be. We don't have to be for ourselves by having it all figured out, having the power to do everything that we think we want to do, nor do we have to be that Savior for someone else. We can entrust them to Jesus. We can trust ourselves to Jesus. And in the same way that we pretend or that we depend on God for his provision, we also depend on him for his forgiveness. Forgive our debts 
as we forgive our debtors. And, and we have to be careful here because sometimes people read this as a conditional clause, as if it's somehow suggesting that God will forgive you as long as you're willing to forgive someone else. It's a cause-effect relationship, and that is absolutely not true. In fact, it is just the opposite. Our forgiveness of others flows out of our forgiveness from God. To say it another way, forgiven people are forgiving people. Do you hear that? Forgiven people are forgiving people. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other just as God had in Christ has forgiven you. Why? Because forgiven people are forgiving people. That daily forgiveness that we receive from the Lord and, and extend to others is what protects unity. It's what promotes fellowship, both in our relationship with God and in our relationships with one another. And Jesus said in Luke chapter 7, one of my favorite passages as this woman from the street comes in and anoints his feet with this perfume and, and wipes it with her hair. The Pharisees and religious leaders are looking down on her for what she's doing because they know who she is. And Jesus makes this profound statement at the end of his message. He says, he who is forgiven little loves little. He who is forgiven much loves much. Forgiven people are forgiving people. Now let's look at verse 13. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. I believe this last section is intended to remind us that we live in the midst of a spiritual battle. Okay? We, we may not recognize it. We may not see the, the invisible spiritual forces that exist, but they're there, and we are in the midst of it. And, and we see that because of what we see in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. It says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. I love Jeff Oldham often counsels people who are going through struggles in their marriages and he reminds them your spouse is not your enemy you have an enemy but it's not your spouse because that enemy seeks to steal kill and destroy and he is always at work to deceive to make us believe things that are not true about ourselves and about other people and so we live constantly in this spiritual battle and the fact of the matter is we cannot win this battle on our own I want you to hear that very clearly, because if you think you can go toe-to-toe, you are a dead man or a dead woman, okay? It doesn't work that way. But when you are in Christ, when you put your trust in him, and he is fighting that battle, it is a battle you cannot lose. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, there is no temptation which has overtaken you, which is not common to man. And God is faithful and just to always provide a way of escape. And not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But, but in everything, provide a way of escape so that you will be able to endure it. That's a promise according to God's power at work within you. So this prayer is recognizing that God doesn't lead us into temptation. In fact, what we see in this passage is that he actually does the opposite. He leads us from it. 
He provides a way of escape so that we can endure it. We see in James chapter 1, verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. Our deliverance from temptation is because and only through God's power. And if God is for us, who can be against us? No one. It is a battle you cannot lose. If God is for you, no one can be against you. Romans 8, 37, we are more than conquerors for those through Christ who loves us. We belong to an eternal kingdom. We serve a God with infinite power for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. So here's what I want us to do as we move towards our close this morning. I want us to spend some time and I want us to pray this prayer together. You'll notice that it seems to be intended for that purpose. It's our Father, right? Forgive us our debts. And so I believe what he's telling his disciples is these are shared needs. This is not unique to any one person. This is common among the people of God. So when you gather, pray in this way. And so I'm going to invite you to stand, and we're going to recite the prayer together. Before we do that, just take a moment, if you would, and I want you to look at the words that are on the screen, okay? Because this is what's going to happen, okay? I grew up in the Catholic Church, and I can go into the Catholic Church today, and without even thinking about it, I can recite every prayer and every refrain that they say, because it's embedded in my brain, okay? And I don't even have to think about it. But I want you to think about it. I want you to be thoughtful about the words that are coming out of your mouth. I want you to look at this prayer, and I want you to think about what we've talked about this morning and just meditate. You might find one word or phrase that is important for you to to stick with today and just spend some time meditating on that for a moment. So let, let me give you some time to do that, and then I'll lead us and we'll recite it together. Pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power in the glory forever. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. So once again, what Jesus is trying to help us see that this is a prayer of trust. Prayer is a posture of dependence. When we pray, we are saying, Lord, I trust you with this. And anything we neglect to pray about, we are saying, Lord, I think I can handle this on my own. So whatever is important for him to be involved in, That's what you bring before him. It's a prayer that acknowledges God's infinite power, his sovereign control, his loving compassion. This is a prayer that is intended to put our heart at rest because we don't pray this prayer crossing our fingers and hoping that Jesus came through, okay? 
that he, that he somehow answers our prayer. What this is, is a prayer of trust that Jesus has come through. That he has, in fact, given us the life of perfection so that he could be the sacrifice for our sins, dying on the cross, being raised from the dead, and is seated at the right hand of God, and that his kingdom will come and he will reign eternal. And we know that that is a promise that we can be certain of. And so we pray with that assurance and we put our trust and hope in him. For his is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen? Let's pray together. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we can ask or imagine. According to the power that works within us through the presence of his Holy Spirit. To him, Jesus our Savior, be the glory. In this church, in First Baptist Church Wolforth, in Redeemer Church down the street, for every church body, every family of brothers and sisters in Christ, may your glory be made known in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen.